0: Service. Uh, it's tempting to me because I know that many of our church family members will be tied up with family engagements on this evening and we'll have a small crowd. At the same time, as I think about it, it always seems strange to, to celebrate the great victory of our Lord, the, the victory at that set, the center, really, of our experience as a church by by canceling our assembling. So I always end up pressing forward. It it just seems like I never want to skip an opportunity to gather in his name. As I look back over my records this week, I I saw that about half the time on Easter, I continue going through whatever series I've been in at the moment, and about the other half time, I take a break from the series and focus specifically on the Lord, Well, tonight I decided to go with the second option. We're going to take a break from our series through the book of Revelation tonight and focus a little bit further this evening on the accomplishment of our Lord and Savior on this day in in which we commemorate him, that we celebrate the empty tomb. We, We focus in on the cross work of Christ this week in a unique way. So I want to do that a little bit more here this evening as we focus on the preeminent one. I decided, as you can see on the screen, that we'll take a passage this evening that's all about Jesus. It's a passage that I frequently turn to when we partake of the Lord's table together. And and when we're distributing the elements, I'll meditate on on these verses. It, It focuses on Jesus as the preeminent one in a very magnificent way. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the first chapter of Paul's letter here to the Colossians. As I said, I frequently find myself meditating on these verses. I I love the truths that are found here. I like to let them fill my mind and and rejoice in my Lord and Savior. These verses that we're looking at this evening, they they come in a context in which Paul is recording what it is that he's been praying about in regard to the Colossian readers. He he wrote this book to a group he's never met, uh, uh, most of them. He's never been there. But he's been praying for them, and he begins reporting in verse 9 about the prayer that he gives for them on a regular basis. He, he tells them he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, especially as it pertains to uh, wisdom and understanding. He, he wants that for them. He wants, their, he wants this in their life because it will enable them to, to walk in a manner worthy of their Lord. They'll be able to bear fruit. They'll be able to increase in their knowledge of God. They'll be strengthened with God's power. They'll be able to give greater thanks to God for all that he's done through their salvation. Paul wants all of this for these believers. And it's with the thoughts of the salvation that they've received from, from Christ, and that God has, has supplied to them through Christ, that in verse 14 Paul transitions to directly focus on Christ. Christ is the reason that Paul can pray for these believers. Christ is the one in whom all the believers have their redemption. Their, their forgiveness of sin comes from Christ. So Christ now becomes the, the focus of Paul's attention in the verses that we'll look at this evening. Christ is the preeminent one. His preeminence is the focus on verses four, or 15 through 20. And as I look at these verses, what I want to do is simply remind ourselves this evening that this is who we worship. When we gather Sunday after Sunday, not only on Easter Sunday, we gather to worship Christ. We worship the preeminent one, the one who is above all, preeminent, first in eminence. He is over all. He is the preeminent one. We worship the preeminent one. In these verses, we see the majesty of Jesus, the the majesty that that makes him the preeminent one, the the majesty that is the reason that we worship the preeminent one. The the structure of the verses, they they demonstrate that his majesty is describing him in, in three different relationships, We we see his relationship to God, we God the Father or the Godhead. We we see his relationship to creation, and and then we see his relationship to the church. Three different relationships and all of those combined to to remind us that we worship the preeminent one. Let's go ahead and read our verses this evening. Picking up in verse fifteen of Colossians chapter one, he referring to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. We worship the preeminent one. The the first relationship that we encounter in the verses that I just read is the one between Jesus and the Father and the Godhead. And from that we see that in our worship, I'm not sure this best way to word it, but to keep this idea we worship preeminent one, we worship the eminence, if you will, of Jesus in the Godhead. As we worship Jesus, we're worshiping his eminence in the Godhead. Eminence means his importance. It means his fame, his distinction, his glory, his majesty. We worship for all these things in his role within the Godhead. He is Eminent there. We, we worship the eminence of Jesus. We know that Jesus is the Son of God, the, the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the triune God. In the Godhead, Jesus is not preeminent, but he's certainly eminent. All the Godhead are equal, so they are eminent, and Jesus is eminent among them. In, in verse 15, Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's reminding us God is a spirit being he He's completely different from us we we cannot see him, we cannot touch him frankly, we can't relate to to God we don't have a frame of reference in, in which we can put God in in a way that we comprehend he he's totally totally and completely outside our comprehension because he's totally and completely outside any frame of reference that we could come up with. By, by which we might try to conceive of God. The the best that happens when mankind tries to conceive of God in, in mankind's own frame of reference is we come up with an idol, a false god. We have no natural means to relate to God. So what did God do? God sent his son. The, the second person of the Trinity, full deity himself, he sent his son to take on flesh a man, so that we could see what perfect deity would look like in a form in which we could relate, in a human form. By, by doing this, God provided a, a way for our finite, limited human minds to, to begin to comprehend, albeit still in a limited fashion, we're still finite beings, but, but we can begin to comprehend now who God is. You see the magnitude here of the truth that's bound up in that short little phrase? He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus allows us to comprehend God. He is the image of God. That, that means that he's a, a representation or, or a manifestation of God. I believe that the commentators are correct when, when they note that the little word is indicates that there's an eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. He is always God, God. And then in in Genesis 1, God created or made man in his image. But Jesus is the image of God. He's in very reality of deity manifest in creation. Remember, Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and then he adds, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. We need Jesus to reveal God to us, to, to manifest God in a way that we can comprehend, to, to the extent that we can comprehend the majesty of Jesus as we find him revealed on the pages of Scripture, as much as we can comprehend that, we're comprehending God because Jesus manifests God to us. Every Sunday when we gather on the Lord's Day, every time we celebrate monthly the Lord's Table, we make our aim to, as we say above me, joyfully magnify Christ. We, we do this because the more of the majesty of God that, that we can comprehend the more of the majesty of the Godhead we are understanding. The majesty of God is, or the majesty of Jesus is the majesty of the Godhead. We, we come to worship our God and the only way we can do that without falling into idolatry Without worshiping this God that we create in our own minds, a a false God, a fake God, the only way that we can worship the one true and living God is to worship the majesty of Jesus as he reveals God to us, to magnify Jesus. In fact, they were created for, whoops, I skipped a page, and that's why it doesn't make sense to me. In fact, Jesus is the, the focal point for you when you come to church. Or you ought to be. So do you find yourself focusing on Jesus as you gather? As we sing the songs week after week, are you meditating on Jesus? Are, are you more excited to, to see Jesus in, in the pages of Scripture than you are to even see your friends when you gather? Yes, we should have a great time together. It should be a glorious time to, to see each other, to catch up on what's been going on in the week, what God's been doing in our lives but that should always be secondary to the chance to see Jesus in Scripture. Is is it more critical to express your adoration for Jesus in song than to spend time conversing in the lobby? You ought to be. Are you seeking to love Jesus more, to to honor him more, to to worship him more, to, to come to... Be captivated by him more each and every time that you enter this building for worship. That's the question that you should ponder as you consider that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15 only contains this one phrase in our paragraph about this first relationship that Paul mentions, the relationship between Jesus and the Godhead. It's not even a long phrase, the image of the invisible God Yet, when you begin to unpack it, this is a powerful phrase. It tells us so much. It informs us about the majesty of Jesus in the Godhead and why that then becomes so precious to us. He is the visible representation, the the very manifestation of God. That alone sets Jesus apart as eminent one, one worthy of worship. We, we worship the majesty of Jesus in the Godhead. He is, to us, the preeminent one. We worship the preeminent one, first and foremost, because we worship the eminence of Jesus within the Godhead. That's the takeaway from this first relationship that Paul mentions. As we move into a second relationship, or a little further, he, he mentions a second relationship, That between Jesus and creation. There's a relationship there. And when it comes to that relationship and we think about worshiping Jesus, well, here we worship the preeminence of Jesus over creation. Preeminence. Unlike in the Godhead, when it comes to creation, Jesus has no equal. He is the preeminent one. We worship the preeminence of Jesus over creation that the preeminence of Jesus over creation, it is seen here that he is the firstborn of all creation. You, you see that there at the end of verse 15? The firstborn. The idea of firstborn, as I expect that you probably already know, it, it carries the idea of being first in rank, having the, the highest place in sovereignty or authority, that the firstborn is the one who is supreme over or we can even use our term, the one who is in preeminence. He is preeminent over all others. Frequently, there, there is, when you think about firstborn, the preeminent one, there's there frequently an element of being first in time with this term, but it's also common for having a positional priority, being highest in rank. That the word can have either meaning or both at the same time. Being first in priority over others, whether in time or rank. For example, in Exodus 4, we we see that Israel is called God's firstborn. And yet Israel is not first in time. Israel was the name that was given to Jacob by God, set apart as as Jacob would be the one, if you remember, as we went through the parts of Genesis, the covenant promises would be passing through Jacob. God made the promises to Abraham, they flowed then to Isaac, and then they continued through Jacob. However, Jacob was born after Esau. He was not the first to be born. He was the second to be born in time. Yet by God's decree, Jacob, or Israel, he's considered first in priority. He was the firstborn. God's covenant went with Jacob. It went with Jacob's descendants, not with Esau and Esau's descendants. That's the idea that we find again when it comes to the Messiah. The Messiah was called God's firstborn in, in Psalm eighty nine twenty seven. He's the firstborn over all the kings of the earth, we're, we're told in that verse. Well, we know enough of our history of the scripture that we know that the Messiah was not the first king to come along in, on the earth. There's many, 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 many kings that come before Jesus came and Jesus is yet to take the throne. He's not the first in time, but the Messiah is the first in rank. He is the firstborn in rank. He is, going, he is first in rank or priority, and that's what is being talked about in Psalm 89, that he will be first in rank over all the other kings of the earth. None will equal the Messiah. So in verse 15 here, when Paul's talking about the firstborn, He's not using this term to, to indicate in some sense that Jesus is first in creation in time or or even that in some sense he's part of creation because he, he, he makes it very clear that Jesus is the creator of creation. All, all the creative plans and, and forces that, that were required to bring this universe into existence resided in Jesus. And, and it was through him that everything was created. Every element of the entire created order finds its origin in the majestic activity of Christ. So he's not born in creation. He's not first in time, but he's first in rank. Paul specifically makes the point that Jesus is above all of the created universe by calling out created orders of the spiritual realm. Christ is is part of the uncreated Godhead, all other spirit beings. He he refers to them here as whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those are all terms that refer to spiritual beings. No matter any rank of angel you might come up with, that is a spirit being that might seem to be higher than anything we see manifested in physical creation, he says he's still higher than that because he created them. They were created by him. Therefore, Christ clearly has preeminence over all of creation, all of creation. They, in fact, they were created not only through him, but also for him. The, the creative forces that, that flowed through Christ, that, that came through the second person of, of the Godhead, the, the one who became that visible person, Jesus, was at the same time the, the, the goal for all of creation. It was for him. From the moment that that Christ participated in in that very first divine act of creation, Christ was also the ultimate goal. Creation was initiated with the goal that, that Jesus Christ would be King of kings and Lord of lords. From the very moment that creation began, that's the goal. Verse 17 clarifies that that. Christ, this preeminent one, continues to hold all creation together so that he will see that it reaches its intended goal. It will not lose its train uh, along the track as it goes from creation to, to eternity. Christ will make sure it reaches the goal where he is the preeminent one. 2 Peter 3.12 appears to indicate that there will come a day in which Christ will remove his sustaining power over creation, and at that point the heavens will melt away. We can be assured, though, that that moment comes after creation has reached its goal of Christ being fully recognized as preeminent. Much as we've seen in our study of Revelation, as as judgment is falling and and the world begins to recognize the, the Lamb who's pouring out the wrath of God, he will be recognized by the world, by all of creation, as King of kings, Lord of lords, the preeminent over all. So our Christ, who we celebrate when we gather for worship, our Christ was before all things. Our Christ is responsible for creating all things. Our Christ is maintaining all things. Our Christ is the goal of all things. Our Christ is majestically preeminent over all creation. Look at the final phrase of verse 16, along with verse 17. All things have been created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. We have three little prepositions there, and each of these prepositions demonstrate why Christ is preeminent over creation. Creation was through him. He is the one who had the, the creative forces that, that caused our universe to come into existence. Creation was for him. He is the goal of creation. And creation remains in him. He is the sustainer of creation. When we look around at creation, we need to recognize that creation displays Christ's majesty, he's the source, he's the means, he's the goal of creation. Every aspect of creation points us to Christ. That's what it means for Christ to be the the firstborn of all creation. The glorious description of the majesty of Jesus over creation should move us when we gather and worship. His preeminence is total. He is first because he is Jesus Christ. Are you worshiping him accordingly? Are you worshiping him as preeminent? Re- remember, Paul warns us. It's, it's very easy to fall into to a trap of, of worshiping creation rather than cre- the creator. It's very easy to fall in that trap. Yet clearly the creator is the only one worthy of worship. He is the sustainer, and he is the one who is worthy of worship. The goal of all creation is the one who is worthy of worship. Creation is designed to point to Jesus as the one worthy of our worship. Let's marvel at the world around us. Let's rejoice at the creation that that God has given us, but let's worship the majesty of Jesus. He is over creation. We worship the preeminent one. We worship the preeminence of Jesus over creation. We've seen this connection of Jesus to the Godhead. He's eminent in the Godhead. We've considered his relationship to creation. He's preeminent over creation. So thirdly, let's see how he's related to the new creation, that the church. We worship Jesus because he's preeminent over the church as well. We worship the preeminence of Jesus over the church. In verse 18, Paul turns from the old creation, the original creation, if you will, to the new creation, to the redeemed church, the the body of Christ. And Paul informs us that that Christ is also the head of the body, the church. He's the head. That, That means he's the one with the highest authority over the church. He rightfully has authority over the church because they are his people. They are his body. He sets the direction for the church. He provides the power for the church. He, he is over the church. Why? Well, Paul gives a couple of reasons to why Jesus is over the church. Uh, a couple of reasons. One, Jesus is the beginning of the church. He's the beginning. That, that phrase points to the fact that he's the source or the origin of the church. There, there would not be a church, or at least there would not be a Christian church. There, there might be some entity called a church, but there would never be a Christian church were it not for Christ in the beginning. Christ is clearly fundamental to the church. Christ came first. A more significant answer, though, is of why he is over the church, not just they came first, but he's also the firstborn of the dead. Now, we've already talked a lot about that term, firstborn. It means preeminent in rank. Not only is Jesus the firstborn over the original creation, he's also the firstborn over the new creation because he's the firstborn from the dead. Remember, it's a term that can have priority in time as well as priority in rank. It can have both. And in this case, both senses apply. Jesus is chronologically the first to be raised from the dead in time. But he's also the first in rank over all who will be raised from the dead. You and I, if we believe in in Jesus Christ, and if we die before he returns, we will be raised from the dead. But we will never have a day set aside to commemorate our resurrection like today commemorates Jesus' resurrection. Never throughout all eternity will there be a a resurrection day to commemorate our resurrection. Our resurrection will be eternally secondary to Jesus' resurrection. We commemorate his resurrection today on Easter Sunday because he is the firstborn of the dead. Not only first in time, but first in rank. Our resurrection depends on his resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. We, we talked about that this morning. His, our, our victory is evidence of his victory. When we rise from the dead, it's just evidence that he had the victory. Our victory is dependent on his victory, not independent of it. It's his resurrection that guarantees our resurrection, not the other way around. In fact, Jesus rose from the dead first for the specific purpose of having first place over the church. From all eternity, God had planned on redeeming a people from their sins. That was God's plan from the beginning. God arranged it so that the process of redemption, though, would place Christ right in the place of preeminence, that he'd be positioned as the preeminent one in redeeming mankind. Christ was already preeminent over creation, Through his resurrection and the associated role that he has in the redemption of others, he is also preeminent over new creation, the church. His resurrection, the empty tomb that we're we're commemorating today, it it elevates Christ to a position that's above that of any other resurrected person now or ever will have. His resurrection was part of the process by by which he, if we use the, the words of the author of Hebrews, in in verse one of uh, chapter one verse three, he says when he, that was Jesus, had made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. None of us will ever sit down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, even when we're resurrected from the dead, because none of us will make purification for sin. He is preeminent in that regard. He is preeminent. And Paul then says in Philippians chapter 2, that is the reason that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here in our passage in verse 19, Paul tells us that it's God's pleasure that all along it would be his, his pleasure would be centered on, on his Son. God the Father ensured that all the totality totality of his divine attributes, everything that defines deity, all that fullness would dwell in Christ. And it would be there to demonstrate the Father's divine pleasure in the Son. Now, certainly we should not find that surprising. After all, on multiple occasions, even when Jesus was walking on the earth, we, we had great direct indication that the Father was pleased with his Son. For example... At the baptism of Jesus, in Matthew 3, 17, there's a divine voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am what? Well pleased. The same on the Mount of Transfiguration, in Matthew 17, 5. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God's pleasure rests on his Son. It rested on his Son when he was here, and it continues to rest on his Son. And throughout all eternity, it will rest on his son that the father displayed his pleasure in the son not only by filling him with the fullness of divine attributes but also by using the son then to accomplish the reconciliation of a people a, a sinful people to himself all things are reconciled through him peace is accomplished through him as we know from Friday as we talked about the cross work of Christ what Paul says here about this being reconciled through him, that, that was a, a process that was extremely costly. It required that the blood of the cross, Paul just references it here, he reconciled having made peace through the blood of the cross. It was costly for this to happen, but it also then brings pleasure through the reconciliation of mankind because it puts Christ preeminent. I know I've said this before, but it bears repeating We need to understand biblical peace is not merely the absence of hostilities. We're no longer at war with God like we were, but biblical peace goes beyond this removal of hostility to creating a a positive relationship. Through Christ's vicarious sacrifice, through his dying in our place, the, the enmity between us and God was removed, and at the same time a positive relationship was established in the place we now have a positive relationship with God. We were, this past Wednesday in the reading through Romans, we were looking at this idea that, that we went from being enemies of God to being adopted as, as sons of God. That, that's what peace means, and that was accomplished through the blood of the cross, through Christ's giving of himself. We can also recognize as we think about this, that through him, in verse 20, that through him to, it was God's plan to reconcile all things there to himself. This reconciliation is not exactly equivalent to salvation. Uh, even though they're inseparably joined together, the, the redemptive work of Christ uh, involves the reconciliation and our salvation. Salvation is the forgiveness of our sins. It, it's the atonement for our sin-guilt. Reconciliation is this removal of this barrier that sin created that separated us from God. So they're linked, but they're still distinct. All of creation was affected by sin. All of creation had a barrier between it and God because of sin. All creation now groans under sin's curse. Christ accomplished reconciliation for all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. All rebellious creation is being brought under God's sovereign power once more by the crosswork of Christ. His, his work has cosmic significance. Nonetheless, it still holds a, a unique significance for us because we're moral creatures who have been reconciled. The church... The church is the pinnacle of God's reconciliating work. It's the highest part of God's reconciliation, and Christ is preeminent over the church. I know that it's a little hard to see in our English translations, but Paul actually repeats that the very same three prepositions that he used to demonstrate Christ's preeminence over creation in verses 16 and 17 again in verses 19 and 20. God the Father gives Christ a role in the church such that the church is in him. It is through him and it is for him. Those same three prepositions to show that Christ is preeminent over the church as well as over creation. This third truth should certainly cause us to worship. It should affect our worship. It's proper that we worship by joyfully magnifying Christ when we gather as the church. We're gathering as his church. We're gathering for worship of the one who redeemed us. He should take the central position in everything we do when we worship. But even beyond that, Christ really needs to have the central position in our lives. We are the church. We're the church when we gather, and we're the church when we disperse. When we go into the world, as we disperse, we take the church into the world. It's, it's our individual duty as, as we joyfully magnify Christ to, to worship Christ by living our lives for Christ, not just as we assemble, but as we disassemble as well. If he is preeminent, then we will obey him at all times. If he is preeminent, then we will be excited to, to talk about him at all times. Jesus is preeminent over the church. We worship the preeminent one. Jesus is preeminent over the church. We worship him. Christ alone. He is the preeminent one. So as we commemorate his resurrection, every day we need to to celebrate that he is the preeminent one. We do it in a unique way today because we remember how he finished becoming the preeminent one over the church, finalizing what was needed for our reconciliation, for our redemption, for our adoption, for everything we receive. But every day we celebrate that he is the preeminent one by worshiping him as our Lord and Savior. We worship the preeminent one. We worship the eminence of Jesus in the Godhead, the the preeminence of Jesus over creation, and the preeminence of Jesus over the church. Those three relationships here. We worship because of the cross. We worship because of the empty tomb. We worship Jesus. To allow us to have just a little bit more time tonight to worship, I want us to sing one of the songs that we sang Friday be- before we have our final song. So as Del comes and Grace heads to the piano, David to the piano, please turn in your hymn book to um, 243. We're going to sing when I surveyed the Wonders cross and think about what it is that Christ has done for us. Let's worship the preeminent one.